Don't look now, young man, but somebody has his hand in your pocket. It's the hand of big government. It's taking away about four months' pay from what your daddy earns every year. One dollar out of every three in his paycheck. And it's taking the security out of your grandmother's social security. You know, that's the great trouble with big inflationary government. It takes more and more of your earnings. It slowly but surely destroys individual initiative and responsibility. Government must draw its strength from the people. And as it drains away this strength, it must inevitably undermine the foundations of self-government. I ask you to join me in helping restore the individual freedoms and initiatives this nation once knew. The government is taking your hard-earned money. Politicians create inflation through big spending, destroying individual initiative, and endangering your children's future. Joe Biden is hiring 87,000 internal revenue service agents to kick down your door and steal your hard-earned money. You're familiar with these ideas, but they first took the national stage in Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater's 1964 presidential campaign. Funny how Goldwater keeps showing up in this podcast. If you were a dedicated listener, you know he lost that presidential race badly. But you also know that the Goldwater campaign brought the far right into the Republican Party as a force to be reckoned with, and 60 years later, they are running the show. Goldwater also invented an interesting political paradox that Republicans have been refining ever since. It goes like this. You can't trust Washington. You can't trust politicians. But you can trust me. One of Goldwater's most prominent and dedicated backers, actor Ronald Reagan, felt the political winds changing in 1964. With no political resume but plenty of experience in movies, television, and giving speeches on behalf of General Electric, Reagan made anti-government politics the keystone of his successful campaign for governor of California in 1966 and became president of the United States in 1980. Here's the quote from Reagan everyone remembers. The nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. As president, Reagan promised to eliminate waste, bureaucracy, red tape, and incompetence. But these were red herrings and covered for other conservative goals, dismantling the welfare state, cutting taxes for corporations and the wealthy, and eliminating regulations that protected the public but cost business money. The government wasn't smaller when Reagan left office in January 1989. It was bigger. And according to the libertarian Cato Institute, the federal deficit ballooned from $79 billion to $1.1 trillion in eight years. Moreover, despite all the talk about small government, Republican presidents have historically driven deficit spending and increased the size of government. For example, starting in 2008, Barack Obama added 2 million jobs, but cut them in his second term. Donald Trump re-added those 2 million jobs in only four years. In the 21st century, as the GOP has left libertarian economic principles by the wayside, they have increasingly adopted strident libertarian rhetoric, urging right-wing partisans to distrust any government initiative. Whether it is shrinking the welfare rolls, cutting taxes, or eliminating regulations, the message is, government can't be trusted. For example, listen to Tea Party partisan and current Freedom Caucus leader Jim Jordan, the representative from Ohio's 4th District. For years, the Democrats told us we're not coming for your guns. 
Oh, yes, they are. Let's be clear. The Second Amendment is as clear as possible, and that's their beef. The Second Amendment says the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. But they don't care. The anti-government sentiment that Barry Goldwater mobilized and Ronald Reagan rode to the White House on has become a nightmare of conspiracy theories and fantastical accusations about a deep state plot to destroy democracy. Here's Donald Trump explaining the many prosecutions arising from his misdeeds as partisan misuses of government power. Whether it's the Mar-a-Lago raid or the unselect committee hoax, the perfect Georgia phone call, it was absolutely perfect, or the stormy horse-faced Daniels extortion plot, they're all sick and it's fake news. Our enemies are desperate to stop us because they know that we are the only ones who can stop them, and they know it very strongly. And they're looking at the polls where, not me, but we are up by so much, they can't even believe it. To understand more about the history of anti-government thinking, I picked up Amy Freed and Douglas Harris's book, At War with Government, How Conservatives Weaponized Distrust from Goldwater to Trump. Amy is the John M. Nickerson Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine and works on public opinion. Doug is a professor of political science at Loyola University, Maryland, and a scholar of Congress and political media. Join Amy, Doug, and me for this episode of Why Now?, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research, a contributing editor at Public Seminar, and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is Episode 24, Against Government. Douglas Harris, welcome to Why Now? Great to be here, Claire. Thanks for having us. What caused the two of you to want to write about distrust? Amy, let's start with you. The two of us overlapped a little bit at Colgate University, and this was the time when Newt Gingrich was coming to power or had come to power. So that was right in front of us. (laughs) You know, we could really see what he was doing in terms of using distrust to try to gain power. It was something that other political scientists really hadn't written about. There's an awful lot of literature about trust and distrust, but it always seemed like the way other people were handling it was that it just sort of happened. It was inadvertent. You know, there were scandals or, you know, there were economic problems or various things happen and therefore there was increasing distrust, but we were really seeing what was happening right in front of us. And then as people were interested in American political history, could go back and see not only that this had happened previously, you know, there's this long tradition in American politics, but also that there were periods when there were real efforts to build trust, like during World War II, where there were all kinds of agencies within the federal government that were trying to get people on board with the war effort and to promote the sensibility that we're all in it together uh, rather than various divisions. 
lot more I could say about that, but clearly it, it was something that there was a pattern going back. And then much later, I don't know exactly when, we picked up on writing about this for another project, writing a piece about the Tea Party. And we could say, oh, okay, wasn't just Gingrich then. <laughs> Here we're seeing it in this effort to take down Clinton's efforts to pass health policy and other sorts of things. So, you know, yeah, we really saw this as an ongoing pattern and a set of strategies that the Republican Party was using and the conservative movement in particular was using. Really interesting. And, you know, when I think about distrust, I do think of those calamities in political life like Watergate, and you see trust in government plunging across the board. So voters, regardless of what political party they're in, can be vulnerable to distrusting government. And Doug, I sort of want to turn to you because at the beginning of the book, you guys suggest, well, actually distrusting government is a theme. It's a much longer theme from from the nation's founding. You know, I think this is one of the things we wrestled with at the beginning of the project because uh, neither Amy nor I believe that it's the citizen's duty to trust a government, that it's the government's duty, including the party in power and the party out of power, to earn that trust and to secure that trust and to build up the institutions from which they benefit. And for the most part, all of us benefit. We don't think that it's it's a bad idea for citizens to be skeptical. We believe, here I'm going to quote Ronald Reagan, trust but verify. The, the skepticism is a positive thing, but that this had gone over into cynical territory and that the strategies here were that people were angry and instead of addressing that anger at its core, they would just use it as a political resource. And that seemed to us to be troubling at the beginning, patterned by the Obama years, perhaps even an existential threat by the Trump administration. This is serious business, and it's something that that I think concerned us a great deal and still does. And Amy, I want to turn back to you. You start with Goldwater, really. The modern period of distrust begins with Goldwater. But Goldwater and his allies, and I'm thinking about Phyllis Schlafly in particular in A Choice, Not an Echo, she's not just saying you shouldn't trust government, but you shouldn't trust the major political parties either. So how do we see that sort of distrust in political parties congealing in a distrust of government in general in the 1960s. That's a very good point, Claire. And, you know, if you think of Phyllis Schlafly, it's it's not just distrust. There's this whole set of conspiracies <laughs> related to John Birch Society, etc., where like nobody is is really, there's some kind of behind the curtain effort that is going on. And so what things seem to appear are not really what they appear. But part of what happens with distrust towards various institutions and distrust to political parties is that then that becomes a tool to take over the Republican Party and to try to shape the Republican Party and then also shape its messages versus its main political opponents. You know, I mean, if we move way forward to Donald Trump, you know, there's nothing more central to his messaging than the fact, you know, than his view that 
nobody's worthy of any kind of trust. The media is lying to you. The election was stolen. It doesn't matter how many courts, even judges, you know, that he appointed say, um, everyone is deserving of distrust. Include, and then that includes establishment figures within the Republican Party. It's a tool to to use to go against one's enemy, whether they're intra-party or, or between the political parties. And it seems very calculated. Doug, I, I want to throw this at you because I'm a New Deal historian, or, or rather that's how I started my career. And one of the chief messages of the New Deal was government cares about you. And they did that in terms of monetary policy. They did that in terms of the beginnings of a welfare state. They even even did that with the FBI, that the FBI would get out there and protect you. So government cares about you. Is the cultivation of what might be a simmering distrust of government in American history a direct response to Republican hatred of the welfare state. Yes, I I think it certainly is. Um, We traced some of that in our chapter on Ronald Reagan, where Reagan was apt to say, you know, the scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And it was a conscious effort to undo the trust that had been built uh, and earned during the New Deal. It certainly was waning on the left through Vietnam and and Watergate. But as the the Reagan era took hold and then the Gingrich era sought to complete its work, the overall argument had to be that government was not a solution, that government was the problem. And then you see these, these conservative organizations that are built up around it. You see the race to the right in elections as uh, Republicans try to outdo one another in in primary elections and the like uh, for for who distrusts the government more and who can say the worst things about government. And then the question is becomes when it comes to policy, the question is not, do I think this policy is a good idea or or even uh, the sometimes uh, fraught question of do do I think these people deserve government help? But it becomes, can you trust the government to do this at all? Is healthcare going to lead us to to death panels? Is uh, our healthcare uh, systems or uh, other kinds of policies just sort of creeping socialism? And what once had become been this sort of fringe argument on the right became the orthodox position of the Republican cause. Amy, what do you have to say about this? Yeah, I I think it's very clear that that this is exactly how a lot of people on the right saw this. You know, there's various memos and such that that we have where they want to counter the New Deal. And during the Clinton era, you have um, Bill Kristol, who now is probably, you know, in this time he's an he's a, a never Trumper. You know, he's but during the Clinton years. He was writing these memos saying that the Republican Party really should not in any way work with Bill Clinton on health care reform. You know, when Clinton first announced his health care reform, people were like, oh, something is going to happen. This is the moment. He said, no, don't do anything. Say no to absolutely everything. And the reasoning that he gave was that this would tie the American public closer to the state, to government, 
that than they had before that they were already connected because of various things you know that had been done in the Roosevelt years and Johnson years in particular and that this was going to be the next step and so instead of arguing about what's the role of the public sector or the private sector and you know whatever it's like just kill it don't don't compromise there were some fairly conservative Democrats and then even some more moderate Republicans at the time that could have put together some kind of alternative. And he just said, no, don't do, you know, just say no altogether because he was afraid that this was going to make it harder for Republicans in the future to be able to win elections because people would say the government has done something good. <laughs> so that's that, you know, and the, the failure to pass health reform was really a, a major factor in why the Democrats lost the House for the first time in 40 years. The polling memos from within the Clinton White House showed that a lot of people were in fact disappointed. They did want something to pass. They weren't that crazy necessarily about what they'd been told about the proposal but they they did want something. So they they actually were interested in government solving problems, but by stopping it, it became a weapon in various ways that really harmed the Democratic Party. And it brought Gingrichism to power, which was a much more personal and very nasty form of Republican discourse. I'm thinking back to the Democratic primary debates before the 2020 election. And there was this signature moment where a number of the candidates were talking about socialized medicine because of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren was supporting it and so on and so forth. And Joe Biden got up there and said, people love their health insurance. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't know a single person who loves their health insurance. I don't think I've ever met someone who loves their health insurance. And then I went on Medicare on May 1st and at least so far, I love Medicare. I think it's great. And so it seems like there is both an effort on the right to say we need to distrust government. And then Democrats are a little more evasive. They want us to trust business and they also want us to trust government. And is it possible to do both things at the same time? I mean, that is a lot of the way that our system functions with both public and private working together, you know, even, hand, you know, now tackling climate change. So you get a lot of government subsidies and government regulations that that help people put solar panels on their homes. But it's we don't have a core like a giant civilian conservation core that's going out and putting solar panels on people's homes. It's, uh, you know, private businesses that are doing it. And I think there's just not the energy or focus within the Democratic Party to feel that it would be safe to push for those things. Because anytime you do anything <laughs> that involves government, big government, scary, socialism, communism, in part because of the whole slew of efforts that we talk about in this book. Yeah, except for the Biden administration deciding to drill in Alaska, which the Republican Party has decided to ignore completely. Doug, what were you going to say on this topic? I think about it from the other perspective, which is the Republican perspective, which is it's not that the Republicans are against government, that there was a huge agricultural bailout in uh, in the Trump years. 
the Republicans believe in in government. They just don't believe in democratic uses of government and the the Democrats' purpose. So we we see right now that there are there are these governmental efforts to uh, intervene in the education profession uh, or or libraries. These these are governmental functions, and the Republicans don't seem to be worried about the threats to liberty that. That ensue from from those moves, but they're they're very worried about the expansion of Medicaid in Tennessee, and other kinds of specific specific policies. So I I think one of the things that we we have to do is we have to strengthen, and I know this sounds a little academic, strengthen our public philosophies on both sides. What is it that you actually believe, and will you believe it if Donald Trump is the president or if Joe Biden's the president? What is it that you believe and uh, what do you think the positive uses of government are and what do you think its limits are and will you abide by those beliefs even when it's inconvenient? Right. And the, the CNN town hall the other night sort of graphically underlined that there are all these people out there that don't want government and actually having Donald Trump as president is a way of saying, I don't want government. I want Donald Trump. Amy. The thing is, if Trump became president, he would further strengthen the power of the executive and try to do a lot of things by fiat. So, you know, this is another case, uh, something we call, it sounds a little jargony, but situational constitutionalism, we use this term. So people will, you know, the Republicans are fine with an incredibly strong president when it's Trump, but not when it's Obama. And they'll take like just really innocuous things that Obama did and call it call it tyranny. But, you know, to pick up on uh, something that Doug said, yeah, these book bans, what is more an overreach of governmental power in terms of free speech than having, you know, government say you can't include these particular books. And then it gets dressed up, though, using the language of, of rights as parental rights, which is, you know, really odd and, and ironic. The Reagan chapter, I just want to tell a little story that we start out that chapter with Reagan coming out to a press conference and saying, those famous words about, you know, the scariest words in the English language I'm from the government, I'm here to help. And then he quickly pivots to announcing support programs for farmers in the Midwest. And so it's like, yeah, I don't think government should help. That's bad. That's wrong. You know, years before he had talked about it being this major threat to liberty. And yet there he is standing up for Midwest farmers needing help from the government. Later in the same press conference, someone asked him about helping the city of Chicago, which is going through some fiscal trouble. And he's like, no, no, they have to figure that out for themselves. So it beca- it's, you know, this use of this language, but it's a pl- and it's strategically used, but it's also really applied in these like ways where it's, you know, it's definitely inconsistent. And often race is a part of that. So, you know, the city of Chicago, a city with a fairly substantial black population and at the time a black mayor does not deserve any help from the government. But white, largely white farmers in the Midwest, and then, of course, some of those enterprises are actually agribusiness enterprises, you know, they do. 
I want to follow up on this question of race too, because that really digs back a little further in American history than this book goes. But of course, we see after the Civil War that when Black people are elected to state legislatures, white people say, this is not legitimate government. This doesn't count as government. And we will not actually have a government that anyone needs to obey until white people are in charge again. And so, so this question of distrust, does that accelerate in part in the 1960s because of how the government goes to work, Democratic Party governance for Black people? I think definitely it does. One of the big effects of that through the 64 Civil Rights Act and the 65 Voting Rights Act is that the Republicans see that there's a lot of disaffected Democrats in the South. The Republican Southern strategy is built on that disaffection and Republicans start making footholds in the South, and then the South becomes the Republicans' base. What that does is it takes what what is moving in the direction of being the anti-government party, and it makes as its base the most anti-government region uh, uh, in, in America. And that just further consolidates this belief in the Republican Party that the federal government, at least, is is a threat. And then if you fast forward to the Obama years, the strained efforts to deny Obama's legitimacy after a big electoral win, after his opponent graciously concedes and pledges support, the birtherism and the, the all of the questions about whether or not Obama is, uh, I think Newt Gingrich said he has this post-colonial attitude, which, which again was meant to otherize the Obama presidency and to gin up those racial concerns in ways that just sort of teed up uh, Bertha himself, Donald Trump, to, to, to consolidate those forces. Let's also throw gender into the mix, because one of the big arguments against the ERA, as Phyllis Schlafly's Eagle Forum proposed it, was that if, in fact, women were declared equal to men in the law, if there was no difference in the law, that the government would then use that to put women in combat positions in the military, make men and women share public bathrooms, and open the door to gay marriage. Now, I want to acknowledge all those things happened without the ERA, <laughs> but, but the idea that if you gave the government power over gender equality, that the government would essentially eliminate the difference between genders speaks to a vast amount of distrust on the right, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the first things that happens with the Republican Party as a as a shift in the you know as Reagan comes in is opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment that have they have that in their 1980 platform despite the Republican Party in the past having been supportive of the ERA when the first ERA was first introduced post suffrage um, as an idea the Republican Party was the first to support it. But then you have a Republican Party in the mid-70s, then up to 1980, being against various kinds of uh, social changes, reacting to Roe v. Wade, reacting to the feminist movement, and also the sort of nascent gay rights movement. And so the Republican Party, which is like becoming Southernized, 
builds that into their party platform. It's also when women stop voting for overall, you know, that's a, you know, 1980 is like really when you start seeing the gender gap. Of course, certain parts of the American electorate that are, you know, female vote, vote for uh, the Republican Party. But you really start getting the gender gap starting in 1980 when the Republican Party really starts to, you know, grasp onto social issues. I want to fast forward now into the 21st century, and I've done some work on the 2004 election and uh, the Ron Paul candidacy. Um, Doug, maybe you could take this question. To what extent has the movement of libertarians into the GOP powered a stronger distrust of government in that party? I think that is certainly the case. Um, there had at one point in American history been the, the governance Republicans, the Chamber of Commerce Republicans. And there was a time when the Chamber of Commerce wanted wanted government promotion as much as it wanted freedom from government regulation. And I think the, the Ron Paul movement, the rise of primarying candidates on the right in Republican Party primaries have gone a long way to, to sort of disciplining reason out of Republicans. I think, for example, of a, a primary election against a senator like Richard Lugar, who when, when Richard Lugar ran for Senate Majority Leader in the 1980s, he was deemed far too conservative to be elected. And then by the time, uh, because Lugar believed in government and compromise, and he understood how the American political system was designed to work, he was open to uh, actually governing, and that became a, a point against him. And I think the idea that anybody who would compromise with government runs afoul of these libertarian sentiments that are on the rise and fueled too, I think, by the odd mix now of anti-Iraq war conservatives who are sort of consolidating that libertarian Ron Paul kind of ultimate distrust that's why you hear Donald Trump talking about the uh, talking about the Iraq war talking about ending ending war in a way that that does challenge some republican orthodoxy uh and we're we're continuing to see the republican party in motion in regard to its distrust of government that when we chronicled distrust in the Reagan years or the Gingrich years, there were parts of government that were off limits, right? The, the police state, the surveillance state, the, the military, those were things that Republicans wouldn't criticize uh, the intelligence community. All of those things became, became targets of the Trump administration at one point or another as Trump took this distrust and moved it into these new directions. And really, that kind of distrust had once been the province of the anti-Vietnam left. I don't think that Trump is against policing. I, I certainly know he's not. Uh, I don't think Trump is against intelligence. I just think he's against it when it is inconvenient to him or a direct threat to him politically. Of course, what he's building on is conspiracism that has accelerated dramatically since 2008. And I think some would argue that the presidency of Barack Obama, having a black president for the first time, was a huge accelerant to that conspiracism. And Trump was involved in that, in, in promoting the birther conspiracy. But to what extent does conspiracism itself require distrust of government. Amy? 
Well, the whole idea is there are these people behind the scenes who are pulling all the strings, like the phrase, the deep state, you know, or for Steve Bannon is a little fancier and says the administrative state, which, you know, political scientists would also use that, that term. <laughs> but yeah, there, there are these people out there, they're pulling the strings, they're you know, we can't, we, we absolutely can't trust what they're doing. The IRS is going to go out and, you know, just do terrible things um, or whoever, anybody is going to do it. But the thing is, there are elements of sort of what are now conservative establishment groups like the or Heritage Foundation that if Trump were to get back into power, would be very interested in dismantling parts of the administrative state. I mean, they have various plans. And Trump was very close to putting this into to place if he had been reelected or been allowed to stay in power to uh, move a lot of government positions from being civil service positions to being appointed positions where he could, you know, fire people at will and would be, you know, taking us back quite a ways in American politics. I mean, we all know, you know, the reason we have civil services because it was very corrupt with without them, you know, and you have a, this whole progressive era period where people want to increase expertise in government, get rid of these corrupt political machines, these, you know, political parties that were, you know, just putting people in power, favors for people. Um, and so, yeah, so there's this view of, we, you know, we can't trust anybody. They're lying to you about the vaccines. The vaccines are actually killing you or whatever it happens to be. I, I've seen a lot of right wing groups that if they say the word, write the word experts, they put it in quotes. So it's so-called experts, these people who think they know more than you, you know, you could be, uh, you know. PhD biologist or a doctor or uh, somebody with expertise and some kind of, you know, something to do with wildlife ecology, whatever it happens to be. Um, and we can't trust that person. This so-called expert um, is really somehow, you know, doing something and, we, and, and, and anything that they say that they found in some study was probably something they made up to serve some some uh, scary master, you know, and sometimes there's this overlay of anti-Semitism with all of that global powers pulling the strings. But yeah, absolutely. There's this, you know, sort of uh, fear of what are these people doing? And we, and we absolutely can't listen to them or, or trust them. And we know, you know, when it came to the pandemic that the vaccine uptake was definitely lower among Republicans. Yeah, no, that's really important. So I want to ask both of you to answer this question. It's the last question I ask all my guests. And I want to start with you, Doug. Why should our listeners read your book now? Well, I think we had diagnosed a problem very early. Uh, and it's the problem that culminated uh, thus far in January 6th and the destabilizing of the American political system. And as people are thinking about how we move forward in a polarized world, we chronicle some of the backstory of these moments. And I think that we have really shown people that part of the problem here is, is this fundamental distrust in government as a prop 
for a party that actually believes in government, that actually uh, uses government, wields it powerfully, and is seeking to wield it all the more powerfully. I think part of what we're doing here is we're pulling back the curtain and uh, not doing so with, uh, with, with the conspiracy theorizing we were just talking about, but doing so with their own internal documents, their own statements in party platforms, their own, their own public statements. This is documented that Republicans were saying things because it worked. We found one document from Frank Luntz to Newt Gingrich in 1994 who said that to wow. say the uh, electorate is angry would be like saying the ocean is wet. And that was uh, the context for the marching orders that they were going to have going into 94 to undermine the Clinton administration and to build the Republican revolution. Amy, what would you say? Why should our listeners read this book now? I'd say because, you know, this is our this is our future that we're looking at and this is our present that we're looking at. I mean, when we were finishing up uh, some edits, it was the fall, summer and fall of 2020. And we told the publisher, we need to be able to know, you know, write some kind of aftermath because we want to know how this, you know, how the election comes out. And then we, and then we saw, you know, not only how the election came out, but Trump challenging the election and January 6th. And all of this is the, you know, ultimate fruits of what we've seen, because it just keeps getting worse. You know, it's it hasn't calmed down in any way. There's a, a, you know, an increase in it. On the other hand, there is a pushback from the public. The red wave didn't happen the way that it was expected to in 2022. Biden won the election. People do actually want some things to work. They want the preservation of democracy. And they and they want uh, some some ways in which government is on their side to help solve their day to day kinds of problems. And again, we don't say trust government completely. That would be that would be completely foolish. Skepticism is is required. But this is uh, the book. It's you know saying this is this is what got us to this moment and this point. And we do offer some potential ways to counter it before it. It, it continues down this road even further. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Why Now on your favorite podcast platform, Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes, to listen to more episodes, or to leave a comment. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. Share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. And follow me on Twitter at Tenured Radical, that's capital T, capital R, or at my website, ClarePotter.com. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. That's all for now. See you next time.